Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale. And today I want to paint a picture for you on this Easter Sunday. I want you to picture fanatical zealots in the desert destroying ancient monuments, defacing gods, goddesses, and ancient figures of the past. I want you to envision men armed, kicking in doors, rummaging through people's personal belongings in their own homes for materials that they don't deem acceptable. I want you to imagine bonfires as people throw papers and literature into these gigantic fires as many people look on helpless knowing that they can't interfere. Many of you are thinking of ISIS and the destruction of history that has occurred throughout the Middle East during their reign of terror. Many of you, when you think of book burnings, you think of the NSDAP, otherwise known as the Nazi Party of Germany in the era of the Third Reich. But actually, the events I'm describing take place thousands of years ago in the very heart of early Christianity as they sought to rip apart and separate themselves from classical culture. And today we explore with a very special guest, the Darkening Age, which is the Christian destruction of classical antiquity. And without further ado, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. And so Catherine, before we jump into this, for my subscribers who may not be familiar with you and your work, would you tell us a little bit about yourself today? Yeah, of course. So I'm a journalist and I have always been interested in religion. My mother was a nun. My father was a monk. And then so they obviously aren't, weren't then at some point stopped being a nun and a monk. And then they married and had us. But that meant that I was brought up in a world that was pretty Catholic. And then I went to university and studied uh, classics. And I was a classics teacher for a little while before becoming a journalist. And I suddenly became aware when I was reading things like Catullus and Ovid and the, and philosophy that this world of Greek and Roman writers wouldn't fit quite as well together with the world of Christian writers as my parents had perhaps told me. So I was brought up to believe that the nuns and monks of the Catholic Church saved Roman learning. And as I started to read more and more about Roman learning, I started to wonder if that was possibly the case. And to my subscribers, before we jump into this episode, don't forget, check out the links in the video description below. It's going to take you to all of the awesome work that she has done, what she is doing. It's also going to contain the link to where you can buy the book and really take advantage of all the awesome insights that it has to offer. I've read it several times, and honestly, I cannot recommend it enough. Based on your research and your imagination, when you hear the phrase, the triumph of Christianity, what comes to your mind? When I hear the phrase, the triumph of Christianity, I used to think that this was the time, because this is what I was brought up thinking by my parents, um, that this was the time when the beastly Romans, who had thrown everyone to the lions and been so cruel and oppressive, were stopped and the kind, loving Christians took over and Europe embraced Christianity and everyone became it became a kind of place and the Ten Commandments came into place and we learned to love our neighbor and not to kill and not to steal and the world generally became better. So that was what I was un, would have understood broadly speaking, very broadly speaking by when I was younger. And then when I became older, I became interested in that particular wording is interesting because in Roman times, a triumph 
we use the word now just to mean like a, a nice thing that happens. It's a triumph. It's a victory. It's, it's a synonym for a great thing for us. But in the Roman times, it wasn't such a, a gentle word. A triumph was a military victory that required certain criteria to be met. It required the plunder of the enemies to have been taken. It required the enemies to be paraded through Rome in the most humiliating way. And it required basically the annihilation of your enemy. And so it's interesting that the Christians took that phrase, the triumph of Christianity, and it would have been known when it first started to be taken, what that meant. It wouldn't have then lost its teeth. And I started to think that actually, this is a more violent, a less peaceable, a less gentle. It's not about St. Paul and hugs and laugh. This is about something much more muscular and much more violent. There's a painting, there's a famous painting, which is called The Triumph of, the Christian, of Christianity. And it shows a smashed classical statue um, in its place that cross has been erected. And I think that, that perfectly sums it up. And when you think of the Christian destruction of classical antiquity, when does that really begin? Well, it gets out of the starting gate very quickly. Almost as soon as Constantine starts, that we call it conversion. It wasn't really conversion. He kind of more just adopts Christianity as his religion. It's not this kind of emotional thing that we think of. But that's in the fourth, at the start of the fourth century, Constantine. Constantine sees a flaming cross in the sky. He starts to patronize really Christianity. And in the course of his lifetime, he demolishes four pagan temples including a temple of Asclepius, who was a healing god and a bit of a competitor, seen as a competitor to Jesus. And then he also starts to take money from the churches. So he sends men to take temples were not just temples in the ancient world. They were temples, they were meeting places, they were libraries, they were stores of vast amounts of wealth. And Constantine sends men to take uh, some of the money from some of those temples. And we also have it recorded that their roofs are stripped in some cases, their doors are taken off. And so it begins with Constantine, but not as much with him as people might think. It's not sudden. It's not every temple. It's not immediately across the empire. It's a beginning. It's the kind of, it's the first rumble of thunder that will later grow to a crescendo by the end of that century. And when we talk about the Christian destruction of classical antiquity, when it really takes off and the everything from the iconoclasm and so on really, really hits hard. How does it manifest itself? That starts to happen towards the end of the first century of Christian rule. So towards the end of the first century, there is a real imperial hardening of attitudes towards all other religions. And you get in the Theodosian Code, which is this big compendium of Roman laws, you get laws calling them the heretical people who aren't aren't Christian start to become heretical monsters, or they start to become the insane pagans. And you start to get these very, very fierce laws that say that the temples shall be closed, that if anyone sacrifices to the wrong gods, they shall be beaten, they shall be fined. These extremely serious penalties start to come into place. And there's one one law that states, it's a little later, but it states that if anybody uh, puts a Christian in charge of a pagan temple, so, you know, spoiling their soul in that way, they're going to be executed. So it starts to become extremely serious uh, within 100 years. And within 100 years, the Christian church also claims that they have wiped out all pagans. It's not true. It's a total nonsense. But that they can claim it. There's a lot about how fast the change has been. 
And you get already in the middle of the first century, the emperor Julian goes to a temple. Uh, Julian, no, most people don't know about him today that much, but he's called, we know him as Julian the Apostate. So Julian, Julian, the kind of betrayer of Christianity. Now he saw himself, he was the one non-Christian emperor after Constantine. And he saw himself as a restorer, a restorer of the great ways of old, the way it used to be, the old gods. And he goes to a temple and, and he finds it's already in ruins. You know, that this religion that was everywhere has, has slipped away, slipping away through through his fingers already by the, center, the middle of the first century, if, if we believe his, his writing. By three, three eighties, so well under a century, you get these amazing descriptions in the in the literature of of what we now call pagans, of these bearded, black-robed tribes of monks who come upon temples like a swarm, and they, they hate them in these in these writings. You can feel the real pagan antagonism, and it says they attack the temples with crowbars, with iron bars, and their hands and their feet if they have nothing else, and they strip the temples. And there's a sense, there's a double sense of the destruction. So they're they're stealing, they're obviously stealing, and they're taking away things of value. And they're also uh, humiliating the pagans, because your temple is a sign, in a way, of the power of your god. To have people tear down your temple, as happens on occasion, is a sign that your god is weak and, and therefore despicable. And this starts to happen in the east, particularly, of the empire, in around, in around the 380s. And then it becomes so bad at points that bishops are moved say you know you should stop destroying destroying these temples because the cities you get the impression are starting to look bad because temples are being defaced and it, and there are you know not everybody is taking part in this of course many temples still stand but it's what it is is terrorism and it's terrified you don't have to wipe out every temple you just have to wipe out one in a violent enough manner and you have made your message very clear when we think of fanatical zealots destroying, defacing temples, stealing objects from those temples, in many cases, sometimes murdering people who may be followers of a certain god or goddess, so on and so forth. What are we really looking at here when it comes to scale? Is this a massive, you could almost call it a crusade, or are these isolated incidents? It was very much a, a personal initiative. So you've got enthusiastic, you've got enthusiasts. So what happens really is they describe these laws come out saying that temples, uh, no temple stone should stand upon another. But that doesn't mean Roman law doesn't work so much like modern law. They don't have a police force. They don't have a way of enforcing anything. And I don't imagine for a moment they would have had an appetite to enforce this anyway. What it does is it, it kind of licenses freelance destroyers to go and do their best. And that's what you get. You get individual in an area where you have perhaps a particularly zealous bishop or you have a very fanatical band of monks, you will get destruction in that area. So famously, St. Augustine, in his area, he watches as a temple in Carthage that had a mile-long kind of precinct is destroyed. And he celebrates that because St. Augustine was very much of the opinion. He said that these should be that these temples should be destroyed is what God wants, it's what he wills, it's what he desires. Because these temples to Christians are the home of demons. They're not just nice buildings. They are a breeding ground for demons, is one phrase. And and people imagine that if you go there at night, you can hear the demons whispering. They're there, they're there as a ploy to drag your soul to damnation. They're not just harmless, harmless buildings. And when it comes to 
the Christian destruction of classical antiquity. What are the ultimate motives here? What's their end game? That's a really interesting question. It's if you read what they are saying, they are very clear that these other religions, particularly the ones like Aeschylus, who look similar, they are what they say is that they've been sent to drag your souls to damnation. So all other religion is essentially a devious trick that has been sent by the Antichrist in order to lead souls astray. So there is a lot of accounts of how religions that look maybe a little bit like Christianity but aren't Christianity are just there to trick you. So Asclepius looks a little bit like Jesus. He has a beard. He does healing acts. He had, he was the son of a god and also of a mortal mother. He went up to heaven after, after he was destroyed. He died an untimely death. And so the idea is, is that he has been sent to lead men away from the true worship of Jesus. And so the idea is if you then destroy the temple of Asclepius, then these people who worship him haven't got any way of worshipping him. Because ancient religion was very performative. You go to a temple and you do your religion. You don't so much have religion in the way that we think of it now. You can say, I am a Christian, and more or less, you are a Christian. You, you should be baptised, you should go to the Eucharist, but there isn't as there isn't that sense that you should go and be seen to perform a sacrifice. That doesn't that doesn't really come into it so much. You can be Christian and not do anything, more or less. You can't be what we would call pagan, although they wouldn't have called themselves that. You can't be pagan and not do anything. It's 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 in the acts that the religion comes. And so if you destroy the temple, you destroy the religion. When it comes to how early Christians would have viewed classical culture, would you consider their animosity towards what it represented to be more towards fear or more towards hate? You get a spectrum. So there are some who are completely steeped in it at one end of the spectrum and love it and deploy it and use it as a as not just as proof of their learning, but because they enjoy it. So St. Augustine likes reading Varro. He likes proving that he's read these things. He likes using them. He, you know, he uses Cicero. He is a, a very articulate man. But equally, they are also suspicious of it. I'd say it's more, more suspicion and anxiety than fear. And the general line that you get, like all forms of censorship, is I'm going to read it, but I don't think you should. In some cases, you do get these dramatic renunciations where people become Christian and then burn their entire library. But on the whole, what you get is that the educated elite Christians are going to keep it. They are going to sneer at it. They are going to uh, attack it, its morals, but they are going to recommend that other people don't read it. So you get writers like Clement of Alexandria saying that people should steer clear of it, like because you might take on some poison with the honey. You know, as a bee, as a bee goes to this flower, but not that one. So you should go to this classical book, but not that one. Because there's so much in these texts that is to a Christian mind dangerous. There's other gods, there's a lot of sex, there are some very rude lines in Catullus. There are there is in Sappho, you have lesbian love, what we would call lesbian love between women. And in other books, you have atomism. You have ideas that the world is just made of atoms. There's no God. Don't worry about God. Be free. Be free of your worries. Religion is just going to drag you down. All of these ideas are, to a Christian, extremely nervous-making. And so what they say is, 
steer clear of them. And in some cases, the attacks are stronger, but the, there are occasionally houses are searched. On the whole, what they're looking for then is magical books. But often philosophers start to get bracketed in a very muddy, muddled way with magic. The word for philosopher and the, the word mathematicus can mean a kind of analytical sort of philosopher, but it also can mean an astrologer. It can mean someone who's doing something funny with the stars. And, and in the same way that astrology and astronomy blur in some people's minds, and certainly in, in when you're speaking, people often find it different to tell the difference, difficult to tell the difference today. So you get this kind of blurring in some of in these early centuries. And the, the real loss, the utterly devastating loss, happens not with piles of books being burned. It happens through dis, just a disdain and almost total lack of interest verging on hostilities and what happens then is that christians stop copying out these books and that is when it's it's in the fourth century really that the greatest losses happen that is when things there's a almost almost total collapse i was talking to an academic about this this week he said he felt that that was the moment that then there's an almost total collapse in the copying of classical works in the first christian century and i had read it had happened a little later i had read six by the sixth century it's almost all gone and that's key because the format that, like, like us changing from records to tapes or tapes to CDs, the format in which knowledge is recorded is changing at that moment. So they're changing from the scroll to the book. And if you don't make it onto the new format, that's basically you've gone. And when it comes to this form of neglect, or you could even call it scholarship destruction, what kind of a loss are we looking at when it comes to ancient writings? The loss of ancient writings is vast. It, it's hard to forget this because we know so much about the ancient world. So we know that a rich man would drink wine cooled with snow water at a banquet. We know that people shrieked in pain when they went to the bars and had their armpit hair plucked by the pluckers. We know that annoyed their neighbours. We know that Horace, when he was sitting in his study working, would rather find himself by a stream drinking wine and cooling his wine in the river. So we know such a lot, but almost everything has gone. So it's estimated, it's hard to do this estimate, how do you estimate from an absence? But scholars estimate that we have about, that we have about 1% of Latin literature left. And for Greek, it's assumed to be a little higher, maybe sometimes 2%, but other scholars say less than that 1%. So we feel that we have a lot. We have lost so much more. I sometimes think a nice way to think about it is if you think of all Greek and Latin writing as a piece of parchment, then it would look less like a piece of parchment. It would look more like a piece of lace. Almost entirely spaces the occasional thread of literature holding it together. And we shouldn't, I think it's important to say we shouldn't imagine that it has all been lost through neglect. Lots of things have been lost. It was a long time ago. So things have been lost. You know, things were lost in the fall of Byzantium. Things were lost in in floods, in fires, in accidental damage. I mean, Europe, academics who study this period don't like you calling it the Dark Ages, but Europe had a less productive period definitely after the Roman Empire, and it had a less, a much less, uh, it was much less able to preserve and much less interested in preserving works widely. Though you don't like the term, and a variety of other people don't as well, I'm going to go ahead and use it so my natural subscriber will automatically know what I'm talking about. When we think of pagan religion before Christianity. Was there any form of religious violence 
in the Roman Empire before the rise of Christianity? They, they were Romans, right? So they, they were not all kisses and cuddles. There is almost no context in which a Roman wouldn't be violent if they could be violent. And um, yes, so definitely there was religious violence. Um, but it was different to what we would imagine. So the state would occasionally clamp down on people. And it would clamp down, it famously clamped down on Bacchic celebrations in the second century BC because they were supposed to be uh, naughty. So the historians will say, just say, talk about these unspeakable Bacchic worship and then speak about it for pages because it's so much fun. And there's lots of Roman matrons getting involved in in naughty things at night and there's all sorts of debauchery. And so the Senate rules against that and Bacchic worship is suppressed. And then it suppresses uh, other forms of religion at other times. It doesn't like, on the whole, the Roman state doesn't like new religion. And this is not because it cares that much about stopping uh, people, because it cares about unity of worship. It's because it feels it's getting on really well with the gods. So the Roman Empire is growing and growing. It's the most successful empire by far in its corner of the known world. And it, it's going great guns, basically. So, And it feels that this is partly due to its, its relationship with gods. And so it doesn't want to upset that. So what it doesn't want to do is introduce a new god that might annoy the old gods, and then their, their fortunes will fall. So it's when the Romans suppress the religion, it's more because they consider it almost treasonous than because they particularly care about anyone's soul in, in as much as many of them did have a sense of a soul in that way. But they could, they could crack down on religion, but they did it very rarely. There's a famous academic who said that when asked about the persecution of the Christians, he said it was, he described it as being too little and too late. And that's, that's a kind of strong line to take. But they really didn't. The persecution of the Christians is very well remembered by Christians. It really was not that significant in terms of number. It wasn't that significant in terms of time. Nothing happened really to them for 150 years uh, in terms of state-sponsored persecution. And there were only sporadic persecutions after that that mainly petered out. So this idea that we have of them as throwing religions to the lions, as being these fanatical zealots, I mean, that really is, it just is not them. That is not what they were like. And a way you can picture this is, is less by looking at what they did than looking at what existed in Rome. So if someone had taken a walk across the Roman Forum in around 380, if the young Emperor Constantine, before he came to power, had taken a walk from across Rome, he would have passed a temple to Isis. He would have passed a temple to Mithras. He would have passed a temple to the Emperor Vespasian. He would have passed a temple to Jupiter. So all of these different gods, many of them foreign, he would have passed temple after temple, coexisting more or less happily with each other. If you had taken the same walk a hundred years later, it all got, they would all have been forbidden from being worshipped. And so we look at these pagan temples coexisting. There's obviously harmony, probably not only among the temples, but realistically among their followers as well. If they start killing each other, it's probably not going to be for religious purposes. But also on the flip side, we look at the rise of Christianity. And if it's one thing Christians were really good at doing in the early church, that was killing off each other. And my question for that is, and you touch on that in your book, why is there such a stark difference between pagans getting along and then Christians just going at it like almost a gang war in classical antiquity. So this is this is a really interesting question. 
question. And to give the Christians credit, a lot of them tried not to, tried to tamp down the violence. Um, and the violence really kicks off later, as, as I understand it. But but you get, they do hate each other savagely. So there's this lovely quote from this historian called Amianus Marcellinus, who says, um, no wild beasts are so, are so aggressive to each other as Christians are to one another. And there's another one who says, what well, the only thing they agree on is the name of Christian. Well, actually, I mean, they don't even agree on that because they only see themselves as Christians and everyone else as heretics. And you get a lot of soul searching because nobody really knows why. So St. Augustine says, uh, why is it that they have so many gods and they can all get on? And we have just one and we argue all the time. And it's a really good question. I was talking to an academic yesterday who said that um, human Adam Smith had a debate about whether it was better to have one religion or lots of religions. And Adam Smith said it was better to have lots of versions of Christianity, lots of versions of Christianity rather than one, because then none of them gets too powerful. And maybe that's what happened in pagan religions, what we call pagan religions. There were so many of them. No one could say that we are the correct one. We are the one. They, they, they had a multiple multiplicity in heaven and they had a multiplicity on earth whereas christianity was would say there is one god in heaven okay yeah there's the holy ghost and there's the there's jesus but that's really one and they would want to see one on earth you get this kind of mirroring often in religions of heaven heaven and earth but again i mean why did it happen i don't know it's easy it is possible to imagine a world in which this didn't happen and but it did they, they were extremely hostile to each other from from the beginning, you can see it there in the New Testament. There's one academic, one um, very renowned biblical academic who, who's, who described the New Testament as a bad-tempered book. And, and it's easy to see what he means. They are squabbling from the beginning about who is right, who is wrong. Is Paul right, is Peter right? Who's, who's got the right message? Let's talk criticism and your work. A lot of my subscribers are going to want to know, most of them will have these questions already, and so this will address a few of them, hopefully. Um, one person had suggested that there is definitely a Gibbon-esque aspect to your work. And I see that one Gibbon, of course, he attributes the decline and fall of the Roman Empire to Christianity. Doesn't necessarily fit well in the East, but in the Western Roman Empire, he has an argument there. But I've seen that it evolves over time in academia. It goes necessarily not that it destroyed the Roman Empire, but more as kind of what you've put, that it destroyed classical antiquity. And so my question is, what would you say if someone were to ask the about the Gibbon-esque influence in your work? What would you say to that? Oh, well, look, it's a really good question. And I should say, I adore Gibbon. I think he's such a, he's such a neat writer. He's so perfect. He can capture an entire kingdom in a clause, and I love him. And he's funny. So he's all the things that historians, I think, should be. Um, I, I don't think I'm that similar to him. People say Gibbonian um, because he did famously criticise the Christians and he did, he did also annoy them a lot. So I suppose we have that in common. Um, he got put on the index of prohibited books by the Catholic Church. Um, uh, and definitely, I know my book has the capacity to irritate Christians of, of certain stripes and non-Christians. Um, <laughs> But I, I diverge quite broadly. Well, one thing I should say is just because Gibbon wrote it doesn't mean it's wrong. For one thing, he was an awesome historian. He had read so much, way more in the original and all of it. 
I get the impression that many, many people who are writing today who are willing to brush him off. I mean, I, I think I think anyone who brushes given away lightly hasn't hasn't I hasn't read him enough, hasn't read other stuff enough. I diverge from Gibbon enormously because Gibbon has this in gives the impression that he doesn't think that the Romans really believed in their own religion. So he talks about you get the impression from him that he thinks that people with so much learning, so much architectural sophistication, such good toilets, can't possibly believe in the silliness as he sees it of Roman gods. And he has this phrase about how if your enthusiasm is prostituted to a thousand deities, you're not going to feel enthusiastic about any of them. And I completely disagree with that. I think I think if the Romans were pretending, it was one of the biggest pretenses that has ever been mounted by a civilization, because they're spending a lot on this religion, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of writing. Um, so I, I completely diverge. I, I completely diverge from him. And I also, because I think they, I think they did believe in their religion. I think they did care very much when it was destroyed. One of the things I think that Christianity has has peddled is this idea that they didn't care. So when I grew up, I remember having a conversation with a lecturer at university where I said pretty much the Gibbonian line. I said that they didn't believe in their religion. And I remember her saying, what possibly makes you feel that? And, and it's because you've been brought up Christian. You've been brought up to believe fundamentally that poly, polytheist religion is silly. Um, now, Roman religion wasn't quite polytheist religion. It's not quite the right description for it. But let's just, you know, it does the job. And they didn't think it was silly. They believed in it fervently. And they were desperate when Christians did such things as take away the altar of victory in Rome. This was a really important altar. The Senate sacrificed on it before they met. And there was a huge protest, a huge sense of betrayal among, among the upper classes of Rome who write about this. And one called Symmachus writes this wonderful thing. And he says, you know, we see the same stars, the same sky is held by all. What does it matter what way a person uses to seek the truth? They're not just saying when Christianity appears, they're not just saying, oh, yeah, you're quite right. You're the right religion. We're the wrong religion. Of course, step this way. They are, they mourn their lost religion. There are people who defend their religion and their religious rights to the death, to the, at the risk of their own death. There are philosophers who are hiding books, keeping teaching, you know, they get some of them some of their number are beaten, some are flogged. It's a dangerous thing to do to espouse this religion, these dying religions. And people do it. They don't do that lightly. So I disagree with Gibbon on that. And as for um whether it caused the end of the Roman Empire, no, I don't think it caused the end of the Roman Empire. My my claim, in as much as it it goes, is much narrower, it, it caused um, a massive loss. To me, a, a tragic loss of culture and intellectual liberty. And I completely agree. I mean, if you want to see how devout the ancient Romans were to whatever faith that they personally held, I think you can easily look at the Roman military and the foreign gods they would bring to wherever they were sent to occupy. We have Middle Eastern cults popping up in Gaul, what is modern day France. We have the cult of Isis stretching all the way from Nubia into Rome and beyond, you know, and I think that's just an example. If they didn't really care about their quote unquote religion, you wouldn't see those religions popping up all the way across the empire as mm -hmm. people who followed those particular gods and goddesses, you know, migrated or were deployed somewhere across this vast land. I think that's interesting because you see so many awesome 
obscure religions pop up all over the empire just because a person over here had believed it and they took that belief all the way over there. And I think that's an excellent, an excellent way to see that. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, and they're not just pretending. Gibbon would say that they're just sort of it's thin veneer of pretense to keep it well, to keep the, the the lower classes happy. But yeah, it doesn't feel like that. And now when we look at your work and its acceptance, even criticisms, my question for you now is what are some of the criticisms you've received over your work and what is your response to some of those? The the given one is one. The, the idea that I paint too rosy a picture of the Roman world. Um, and too nasty a picture of the Christians is another. Now, the criticisms are that I was painted a too black and white picture. And, and you know, that that is, it's a valid criticism. I mean, one of the things I would say is that I've reviewed books. This is good. This is the game. Somebody says an idea, somebody else kicks it back. This is how things go forward. As a journalist, as a historian, if I had been writing this book as a professional historian in an academic department, I would have caveated every point. I would have footnoted every statement. I would have I would have ummed and ahed a lot more. Um, and I possibly would have put in more from the Christian side, more of the good that Christians did, more of the uh, more of the intellectual sides of Christianity. As a journalist, I was writing it thinking people have a limited appetite for reading my words. I am going to put in the side that they haven't heard. As a journalist, it's completely acceptable to take one person's side of the story and tell it as well as you possibly can. That is what an article does. It will take one person, it will tell their story. It won't tell the story, it will allude to the story of the other side, it will say that there are other sides to this story, but it won't go big on them because because you only have so many words. And my feeling was so many books have been written about the rise of Christianity about the persecution of Christians by Romans, about the monasteries and the works they preserved. I didn't think the world needed to hear that again. And I I say in my book, you know, this happened. And I say that great amounts of good was done by the Christians. That happened. But my feeling was that that is written about. There is no shortage of academics in theology departments. There is no shortage of Christians writing such books. These things are all true. just thought, you know, I was just telling a story that seemed to me to be an important story, an interesting story, a fun story. I was telling it from that point of view. And and as a journalist, I feel that's a worthwhile thing to do. And I couldn't agree more. Honestly, reading quite a few of the comments, people will post a picture of your book and be like, have you read this? And like, uh, take the biggest Roman history group on Facebook. And I'm telling you, in less than an hour, you're going to have hundreds of heated, and I mean heated comments. But I also think from some of the comments that I've read, I feel like if a guy would have written this book, it would have received less criticism from novices, you know, novices like me, for example, to where, because I was reading the comments and some of them put such an emphasis on she. And I'm like, well, that doesn't matter. That's stupid. You know, if I were to write the same book and I'm not an academic historian, I would expect to be just as criticized. You know, I don't want to be less criticized for my work, you know? And so I thought that was really random that some of them try to make that point as if that somehow invalidates your work, which is, I'm going to leave this on stupid. It just, it kills me. But the other, I see that a lot of them maybe feel conflicted because of religious bias. But at the same time, like you point out, we have plenty of positive books on Christianity, Christian history. Nobody is denying 
that the medieval church helped keep Europe afloat during the Middle Ages. You know, no one's denying that. No one's trying to take away from the good things that Christians have done throughout Christian history. But it's also okay to focus on the darker aspects of one of the greatest, largest religions on the planet. It's interesting. It's very interesting. I feel like a lot of the hate that your book gets is usually probably more from a religious bias. I can understand that. I used to find it very difficult when people criticize. When I was younger and religious, um, kind of unthinkingly religious, really, it, criticizing someone's religion is a bit like criticizing someone's mom. It's something you've been brought up with. It, it goes to a place, it hits you in a place that is very emotional. Um, I mean, I also think the criticism is good. You know, that that is what a free world is about. Somebody writes something, somebody says no. That One of the things I dislike most about Christianity in this period was its clamping down on all other viewpoints. This is the kind of classical world to me. It's the quarrelsome, argumentative, bad, you know, heated classical world. I, I sort of celebrate that there is, I celebrate that there is criticism. And some of the criticisms, you know, I, I could have written some of the bits of the book uh, differently to include more about Christianity. It would have become a longer book. It would possibly have become, to my mind, a duller book and a book that has been written already. I told what I thought was untold or undertold. That was my, that was my intention. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us here today at the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I have been your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we were joined by a fantastic guest, an awesome researcher, awesome writer, Catherine Nixie. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And to my subscribers, like I said earlier, don't forget, check out the links in the video description below. Take advantage of all the awesome work she is doing to help people like me and you better understand the history that we all love.